<laughs> Come on, give God a hand real quick. I love that. God and victory together, you can't do nothing but win. Hey, do me a favor. Say this with me. Say, God wants to do more through me. Say it again. Say, God, now believe this, wants to do more through me. Man, I believe that so much in my heart. And we've been in a series called More. My name is Troy. Me and my wife, Darla, get the incredible privilege to pastor this church. If you're visiting with us today, we want to say welcome. We are right in the middle of this series called More. And when we began this series, it was kind of more, it was all about the more that God has or God wants to do in us. And then last week, and as we move forward, God's kind of moving that over to now, the more that God wants to do through us. And I think we're learning that. I think we're actually learning that in order for God to do more in us, it means that he then must do more through us. Because when you watch that video, you can hear it in Nina's voice. It's God operating through her where she gets to experience more of God. And if you've ever actually experienced that before, if you've ever been able to share the gospel with somebody or you've, had a, you've invited a friend to church and they got saved or got baptized or, or whatever it might be, if you've ever been in a situation serving different aspects where you felt God go through you, then you know how that tends to really open up more of God in you. And throughout this series, we've been following the life of a man named David. And we started off with the more in you as he was anointed to be a future king, and then he defeated Goliath and all this kind of stuff. And we watched uh, as God started to work through him. And, and David's actually learning that to experience more of God in him, it's going to take more of God doing things through him. And last week... David walked into a room of a priest by the name of Ahimelech, and there were two items in that room that had a lot of potential, but weren't being used to their purpose. And we begin to talk about how a lot of us have high potential, but we don't always get used to the purpose that God has called us to. And David's about to see something today that I want us to see together, and that's this, that in the pursuit of finding the more that God has for him, He's about to find out how much God wants to do through him. And I think that for you and I, in the pursuit of finding the more that God has for us, hear me, it's not a sin to look for God to do more in your life, okay? And when we pursue that, almost every time, every time in my life, I have found that in that pursuit of more in me, God reveals to me how much more he wants to do through me, amen? If you got your Bibles, you turn to the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 22. We've just been kind of going through 1 Samuel. Um, and, and normally what I will do here in this time is I will open up with about 9 or 10 verses and really set that up for us, and we'll kind of pick it apart and all throughout the message. But today is a little different. All I want to do is look at two verses. Now, I'm, I've got others that are going to come along with it, but our whole sermon is set up with just two verses in 1 Samuel chapter 22. So whether you brought your Bible or you want to get on your phones or you just want to follow on the scriptures behind me or the app, whatever your source might be of following along, I just want you to read it for yourself. I want you to see just these two verses setting up our point today. So 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 1 and 2, David left Gath, it's where he was. Gath was actually the home of the Philistines and Goliath, and he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and his father's household heard about this, they went down to him there. Now, watch this. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented 
So I had a friend of mine used to say, all those that are broke, busted, and disgusted, right? All those that are in distress and debt or discontented gathered around him, around David, and he became their commander. And there was about 400 men with him. We're about to see that in David's moment of need, God sends him needy people. We're about to understand that in David, watch this, in this moment of David's life, okay, David is undervalued, David is under-resourced, he's insecure, and he maybe even feels a little insignificant. And right in the middle of all of those emotions, God's about to use him to change the lives of other people. And here's how he's going to do it. Through David, God is going to give these people purpose. And so in a moment of feeling undervalued, under-resourced, insecure, insignificant, God is about to operate right through him. Because listen, the people who tend to make the most impact in this world and on people's lives are not people of predetermined influence. We tend to think, well, if they're a teacher or if they're a firefighter or a policeman or or a congressman, they're going to make the most impact. It's not always that way. It's not necessarily people that have predetermined influence. It's people who refuse to believe that their life is insignificant. When you refuse to believe that, you are set up to make the most impact. And I want to show you this morning in the most obvious way where you cannot deny it. I want to give you, this is going to be the most practical message I've ever preached. If you've been here, you know, I'll I'll tend to try to be inspirational and different things. And I'm just going to be as, I'm probably still going to be a little inspirational because I tend to get a little excited. But it's going to be so practical. And the reason why it's going to be so practical is because this thought is so black and white for us. It's just so right here in the Bible that God wants to operate through us. We looked at a verse last week that said God wants to make his appeal through us. But in this conversation and in these sermons of how you're going to change the world, It tends to become so inspirational that we miss out on the practical. And it's very practical. You say, but oh, Troy, you don't understand. It can't be through me. I'm I'm undervalued. I'm I'm undersourced. I'm I'm insecure. I'm insignificant. You can say all of those things. And I'm just letting you know that David, right in the middle of that moment, was when he was used in the most incredible way to impact lives. Amen? Amen. So the whole sermon is around this thought. Here you go. You have a round group. You have a round group. Now, you can go ahead and start trying to break that apart all you want, but I'm going to have to set it up for you. You have a round group. You have a round group. What is a round? A what? Circle? All right. You have a circle group. You have a round group. Watch in 1 Samuel chapter 22, verse 2, watch what this says. All those who were in distress or in debt or discontented gathered what? Around him. They gathered around him. They were surrounding him. This was a circle. If any of you ever remember hula hooping back in the day, right? It surrounds you. This group of broke, busted, and disgusted people gathered around David because God brought to him, listen to me, a sphere of influence. God brought to him this group of people that surrounded him so that he could lead them and so that he could influence them. Do you know that you are a person of influence? Has anybody ever told you that? Some of you, you've been told that since you were a child because you're the one that walks into the room and everybody knows you're there. Man, you're so influential. 
Some of you, you haven't been told that because when you walk into a room, you tend to kind of get back a little bit and not speak. Do you know you are still a person of influence? You have been a person of influence since you were a young age. Every one of us have had influence since we were young. I'm going to give you a story. One time we were, this was back, we would go with Darla's parents to, to they had like a, like a lake house in Heber Springs, Arkansas, and we would go out for the summer, and Veda at the time, my nine-year-old, she was five years old, little, little blonde-haired girl, and we went to the lake, and, and at this time, you probably never heard about this because it's super country, but they had these things called cardboard boat races. Y'all ever heard about this? You, you would build a boat out of cardboard, and you would race it in the water, right? How bored did you have to be to come up with that? You know what I mean? Like, uh, and for me, it was, you can't afford a boat, we'll build one out of cardboard. Makes sense. And so, so we would go to that and they would have it all on this like little island area and there'd be food trucks and people would be throwing frisbees and it was just this big, thousands of people were out there. And so we're out there eating food and, and watching because I don't build cardboard boats. And so, you know, we're watching, having a good time and there's this playground and my daughter Veda at five says, you know, let's go play on the playground. So I said, okay. So I said, darling, I'll be back. I'm going to go with her for a little bit. We go to the playground. We walk up. There are six boys on the playground. No girls, six boys. And they're all older boys, and they're all big for their age. You know what I mean? Those kind of kids. Like, they have, they'll have a mustache in fifth grade. You know what I mean? Like, that kind of kid. And so I'm th- as I'm walking up, I'm thinking, oh, this is not going to be fun, because they're not going to let her play, right? They're not going to, this is, they're going to, like, bully her, and this is just, this is not going to be fun. And so I said, babe, you sure you want to do this? And she's like, yeah, yeah. And I'm like, fine. So I say, all right, you go play. And I sit down on the little bench that's provided, and I'm sitting there 10, 15, 20 minutes go by. I'm, I'm watching the crowds and all that. And all of a sudden, I turn around back to, and one of the boys is standing right in front of me completely still. He's just standing in front of me, not looking at me, but he's looking that way. And I'm like, what is he doing? And I look, and the other boy is over here in this corner, and the other boy is over here in this corner, and another boy is over here in that corner. And I'm like, what? First of all, where's my daughter? Right? <laughs> parent of the year, not, and I'm like, second of all, what, what, like, what has happened, right? Like, they're filming the movie Us, right? I don't know what's it like, the people done got in the corner, and so I kind of, I touched the kid, and I was like, hey, excuse me, what are you doing? And he goes, I don't know, she just told us to go to the corners. <laughs> and I was like, who told you? She was like, your daughter, you know what I mean? She was bossing six boys around, you know what I'm talking about? To this day, she bosses boys around. She had influence then, at five years old. She had the power of influence. Can I tell you something? You have a power of influence. And the enemy's greatest task is he makes us think that we don't. You have actually had a sphere of influence your entire life. First of all, you had a sphere of influence on the playground. Remember the crew you rolled with from the slide to the swings? You know what I'm talking about? Like when y'all got up, it was like West Side Story. Y'all just kind of all went together to the swings. That was your sphere of influence. And then you got a little older and now it's in the lunchroom, right? Everybody's got a sphere of influence in the lunchroom. You, depending on what your style of life is at that time, whether you like sports or don't like sports or whatever it might be, you had your sphere of influence. Then you kind of got older and it went to the hallway, right? You know what I'm talking about? As you get older, it's the locker room. You got to be around the lockers. That's where your sphere of influence is. Everybody met at the locker. And then you graduated school, maybe it was the crew you played video games with, or it was your your team you played sports with, or maybe it was in the dorm room, right, or it was at a party, whatever. But you had your sphere of influence. Now it's mostly in your workplace. Listen to me. Doesn't matter what season of life it is, you have a sphere of influence. There is somebody right now influencing you, you're in their circle, and you are influencing people there in your circle. I'm just telling you right now, it's guaranteed. Guaranteed it's happening. 
Paul even had a sphere of influence, and he spoke about it. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. He said, we, however, will not boast beyond proper limits, watch this, but will confine our boasting to the sphere of service. We will confine our boasting to our sphere of influence, our circle of people. Paul understood, I've got a circle, but watch what else Paul understood, that God himself has assigned to us. So not only do I have a sphere of people, but God put them there. I, you, you think you went out and found them, God put them there. There's a reason why you like Harry Potter. You know what I mean? God put it in you. There's a reason why you like to play Call of Duty. There's a reason why you like to go to Home Depot and buy wood to just look at it. All right? There's a reason why you like these things. God put it in you so that you would attract people that God has assigned to you because God wants you to influence their life. Where you work right now is not by accident. Whether you like it or whether you don't, it's not by accident. The people that work at the Kroger that you go to every week to get your groceries, they're not there by accident. That pimple-faced 14-year-old thinks they're there because mama made them get a job. They're there because God assigned them to be in your circle of influence because God has a calling over their life. Every circle that you have, your job, where your kid goes to school, where you get your hair cut, where you like to get your Chick-fil-A at, you know, whatever it is, whatever store you go to read the book on on Friday night, like everything, whatever it is you like to do, there's a sphere of influence in there that God put there on purpose. He assigned them to you. And if there's anything I want you to get, it's what I, that's what I want you to get, that there are people that God has assigned to you. The first time I ever really started to believe this is about three, maybe four years ago. And um, I get my hair cut pretty often, okay? I don't like long hair. It's just a thing about me. And so like every two weeks, I go get my hair cut, right? And haircuts are difficult because if you don't have a good hairstylist or barber or whatever you call them, you'll look a hot mess until you find another one. You know what I mean? You can take the most prettiest person. If they get a bad haircut, it's rough. It just is what it is. So it's hard finding a good barber or a good hairstylist. So when you find one, right? We hang on to them, right? You just, you ain't going nowhere. You're, you're my hairstylist. And so there was this uh, girl, I don't know, she's in her mid-20s, named Mandy. This was about three or four years ago that I found in Memphis, and she cut my hair perfectly. Like, I didn't have to say anything. I could just knew I could walk in, sit down. She knew what to do. I didn't have to worry about getting up looking like a hot mess. You know what I mean? Like, it's, it's beautiful when you have that deal. And, and so I, I go to her every two weeks, every two weeks, there I am, every two weeks, there I am, every two weeks, there I am. This happened for two or three years, y'all, that she cut my hair, just every two weeks. So we had 50 to 75 meetings, right, throughout this time for haircutting. Well, it didn't take maybe three or four first haircuts before she found out that I was a pastor, right? Because eventually you say, well, what do you do for a living? Well, I'm a pastor. Oh, you're a pastor. And immediately people start acting different, right? Like, oh, you know, it's like, what are you doing? <laughs> like, I'm not Jesus, right? You know, and so... So we just kind of begin conversation, and I, I never, I never, I didn't walk in and go like, listen, this is who I am, and if you don't change your life, you're going to hell. Like, it didn't happen that way. I, I just came in and said, can a brother get a haircut? And so, so we just, we had conversations. She'd tell me about her life, and I'd tell her about my kids, and I'd tell her about Darla, and she'd tell me about her boyfriend, and we would just talk and 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 talk. And, and I never really pushed it on her, right? But, but I would just say things like, yeah, you know, I, I preached last Sunday. Here's what I talked about. Da, 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 da. And then I would immediately move on, right? Well, how, how's Jimmy, right? Or whatever. What, I don't know what his name was. Sorry. And we just move on, all right? 
And I just, I just knew how to do that. And we would just talk about different, yeah, this is happening. Hey, you should come sometime. Did it, I would just do all that. And this went on and on and on and on. And what I found is she started, like, wanting to ask me questions, right? You know, a couple weeks, a couple months into it. She said, well, hey, what, 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 when the Bible says this, what does it actually mean? You know, or this, that, and I would, I would answer those questions, and then, then I would just move right on. And we would go on and on and on. I invited her, I invited her. And, and probably about a year and a half into this, she had a personal problem happen. Just, just something she didn't foresee coming that was completely life-changing, life-altering, and, and scary. Who do you think is the first person she wanted to talk to? Me. Not because I'm special, but because she knew that I was the closest person she knew to who? God. And so that's who she was really wanting to talk to. That's who she was really wanting to get. But she just knew that I was the only person she knew that could get me there. I remember that there was a Kroger right beside the haircut place. And she literally, uh, I got my haircut and I went over to the Kroger. She came running into the Kroger to tell me. She wanted to tell this thing to me because she had just found out about it after I left. She wanted to tell me about it. And so throughout the next, I don't know, six or seven months, we were able to walk with her through that. And about eight months, so probably two, two and a half years into this, I got the opportunity to lead her to the Lord. Just an incredible, incredible moment. You can give God praise. That's cool. Definitely praise God. And so she gives her heart to the Lord. Now watch, this is, this is one of the reasons why I'm going to tell you this. So last week, we took the kids to Memphis for spring break to see the grandparents. And I'm like, man, I got to get my hair cut. I don't want to be on stage looking like a hot mess. And, and so I don't even know if Mandy, it's been like two and a half years since I've seen her. And so I don't even know if she still cuts hair. So I got on Facebook, messaged her and said, hey, do you still cut hair? She said, yeah, this is where I'm at. I ran up, I met her. We get talking. She said, how's victory? She was like, oh my gosh, God's so amazing right? We talk about it. I'm like, yeah, this is what's happening. This is crazy. Da, 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 da. She's like, man, that's so crazy. God's great. She goes, guess what? I'm engaged. I said, oh, that's so great. She, I said, how's baby Gentry? She said, oh, baby Gentry's doing great. I said, oh, that's so great. She goes, hey, what are you doing December 7th? I said, I have no idea. I hope I'm alive. Why? What's... She goes, I'm getting married. Would you officiate my wedding? I said, oh, I would love it. I would love it. She goes, well, what do you do? I said, I don't know. I'll drive back and, and be back in Smyrna at one o'clock in the morning. I have to be, but I'm going to officiate your wedding, right? That's what I talk about when I say God's assigned people to your life. It's not just so that you can be nice to them just to be nice to them. It's not because nobody else likes them. God's assigned them to you because he wants you to influence their life forever. And there's a moment where you recognize that. There was this moment where I said, you know what, maybe I'm not just getting my hair cut. If I'm going to see this girl for, you know, every two weeks for who knows how long, maybe I should be more purposeful about it. And this is what I think Paul was saying, well, hey, I recognize that I've got this fear and that God assigned them to me. So here's my question for you. You ready? The most theological, deep, Hebrewic, Greek-found question you'll ever be asked. You ready? Who is around you? Who is it? When's the last time you just took inventory for a second? Who, who, who is around me? And why are they around me? Who listens when I speak? And why do they listen when I speak? Because listen to me, your sphere is going to change. The people you were influencing in kindergarten are probably not the people you're influencing today, right? Or you're a really good friend. So it changes. But in this season right now, who is around you? Can I show you a picture? Just to kind of give you a mental idea of this. This is you, okay? You're, you're abnormally larger than other people in your life, okay? This is you. And these are the people that are around you. And, and statistics say that these people are normally put into four categories. All right, one's geographical, right? It's the people who kind of live near you. One is vocational, might be the people you work with. 
One is biological, might be family, you know, cousins, aunts, uncles. And I can't pronounce the word for the other one, but it basically what it means is hobbies and interests. Okay? So you can kind of divide them into four categories. But regardless, you have this right now. Am I right? If I'm wrong, I'll get off stage and we'll just show the video again and I'll leave. Right? I'm right. This, you have a circle of influence. It might be at your job. It might be the people you hang out with in the weekend and you cook out with or whatever, but there is a circle of influence in your life. Now listen to this. Sociologists say that, the, that most people, the average human being, has 8 to 15 people in their sphere of influence. 8 to 15. So, so this is 9, I think, but you might have 8. Amber, you might have 8. Tim, you might have 15. It, 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 you know, but watch this. I thought this was really interesting. But then sociologists in this study said, but once you get to an average, the average person has 12 people in their sphere of influence. That sound familiar? If it doesn't, let me help you. Luke chapter 6, verse 12 and 13. One day, soon afterward, Jesus went up on a mountain to pray, and he prayed to God all night. What was he praying for? You're about to find out. At daybreak, he called together all of his disciples. So he had 70-plus people following him at this time. He called them all in a room. It looked just like this. Call everybody in a room. Hey, everybody, come here, come here, come here. And then he chose how many? Where did we hear that number before? Do y'all remember? I just said it. You remember that? Were y'all awake for that? Twelve. He chose 12 of them. He surrounded himself with the sphere of influence of 12 people. I used to wonder why 12. Why not 8? Why not 15? Why 12? When Judas betrayed him, why did he replace him to get back to 12? Why? Because Jesus was modeling for us that you could change the world in your sphere of influence. That if you would just focus on the 12 people that God has assigned to you, if you would just do your best to love them and share the gospel with them and introduce them to the Jesus that you know, if you would just focus on your sphere of influence, you, my friend, could change the world. Here's what I mean by practical. Somebody will get into the same place and tell you, you can change the world. You're a world changer. And you're all like, yes, I am. I'm going to change the world. You know, the Rocky theme, da 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 You want to run down Philadelphia stairs and stuff. Like, you're all excited. And then you walk out and go, but I don't even know where to start. That's a lot of people. I get intimidated when my waiter comes up to me. You know what I mean? Well, what do I do? I'm telling you what to do. Already work with those that God has assigned to you, that God has already given you an influence over. There are already people that God has assigned to you to change their lives forever. Forever. The more I studied this this week, y'all, this is why I started getting a heavy heart about this. Think about this. Roll with me for a second. Jesus is born and lives for 30 years before his ministry starts. He was alive for 33 and a half years. He did three and a half years of ministry. So for 30 years, he just played Call of Duty and, you know, drank Mountain Dew or whatever teenagers are doing today. So he grows up. He comes, he starts his ministry. He's baptized by John the Baptist. God brings affirmation over him, which is what Pastor Brian read a minute ago, that this is my son who I'm proud of, right? That's what he talked about. So now Jesus goes into the wilderness. He's fast for 40 days and 40 nights. Y'all probably heard about that. Comes out for ministry. Now, go with me on this moment. Every one of you, just, just put yourself in this place. You step out of the forest. You've got three and a half years to change the world. You've got this incredible gospel about God and how much he loves the world, and you've got to get it to every single individual. 
You've got three and a half years. What do you do? All right, we're going to split everybody up in little small groups, and we're going to work a project and figure out a plan, and we're going to pick the best plan. Somebody says, let's go rent out Bridgestone Arena, right? Let's put billboards all down the interstate and then get as many people as we can into Bridgestone Arena, and then we'll tell them that way, right? Some people say, man, let's go get mailers and send them out, right? Let's, let's, let's put us on TV. we got to be on TV. If we can get on social media, we can tell the world. Jesus doesn't do any of that. Jesus says, i got three and a half years. i got to tell the world. I need 12 people. I just need 12 people. And if I can surround myself with a group of 12 people, I can effectively pour myself into 12 people. And I can tell them all about the gospel. And I can explain to them the culture. And I can give them the burden for other people. And I can watch this thing spread like wildfire. Because if there's anything Jesus knew, he knew this, that your sphere of influence has a sphere of influence. So if I can tell 12, and they've all got 12. Now listen, I didn't do the best in school, but 12 plus 12 is less than 12 times 12. You understand what I'm saying? So Jesus said, the best way that I can tell millions of people about this quick is to really surround myself with a small group that I can make sure they know and then they can turn around and go tell others. This has always been Jesus' plan. This wasn't his number one idea. His number one idea was small groups. Do it that way. We'll gather together and we'll worship and we'll celebrate what God's done. But your sphere of influence is your opportunity to change the world. Am I right? I hope you, I don't know if you're liking it. I'm liking it. It's going to get so much better. Okay. I'm going to read you a quote from C.S. Lewis that if I preached with a handheld microphone, I would drop it after I read it. Okay? That's how, that's a mic drop reference in case you didn't know. Uh, this is how incredible it says. Watch this. Christians are Christ's body. Christians are Christ's body. We're Christ's body. You're Christian? You're Christ's body. The organism through which God works. God wants to do more what? Through you. So we're the organism through which God works. Now watch this. Every addition to that body enables him to do what? More. It's like C.S. Lewis knew we were going to be preaching this. Right? If you would let God work through you and add to the body, then the body can now do more. Because it's the multiplication process, not the addition process. Jesus wanted us to understand so bad that he's assigned people to our life, not so that we could gossip with them, and not so that we could complain to them, and not so that they could be there to enjoy things because it's fun, but so that we could impact their lives forever, forever. I'm reading this, right? I'm studying this. And this thing keeps standing out to me. Did you see how in verse 22 it said 400 men came to David? I'm reading this and I'm studying this. and Here's what starts standing out to me. Is that David's army of 400 men kept winning battles against larger and stronger armies. And I was confused by that. I understand that God's hands on David. I get it. But how could a group of 400 men keep 
defeating groups of thousands in armed combat. And I started studying it, studying it more, studying it more, studying it more. And I found this out, that David, through some of his men, had trained his men to be able to fight with both hands. Okay, they were, how do you say this, ambidextrous? That's what they were. All right, here's why this matters back then. First of all, side note, um, back then they thought, every, if you were different, they thought you were demon-possessed back then, okay? So if you were left-handed, you were demon-possessed. That's just, I mean, it was just crazy. So nothing against you left-handers, it's okay. Um, that was not a true statement. And so, but it was, big, it was such a big deal that people, even if they were left-handed, they would train themselves to fight with their right hand because they didn't want to be in that group, right? So everybody knew how to fight with their right hand. So that means that every time they went into battle, the person they were fighting with knew that the sword was going to be in where? The right hand, okay? It's like fighting with one hand tied behind your back. I know where it's coming from. I know where it's coming from. So they knew. They knew how to fight them. Here's what was even more interesting. If they got an arrow in the arm, right, or if somebody sliced uh, a finger off or whatever, and now they can't fight, all they've got over here is a shield. So now they go from being offensive to being what? Defensive. And it's only a matter of time till they're dead. So the enemy knew how to fight them because they knew this was their hand. The deal about David's army was they could fight with both hands. So when an enemy's coming at his right hand, they could just whoop and take him out, right? Or if they got an arrow in their right hand, they're like, aha, they're done. They're like, aha, no, I'm not. And throw it back and they'd be ready to fight. And that's how they were winning all the time because they could use both hands. And you're like, what does that have to do with the sphere of influence? I asked the same question because it didn't make no sense to me on why that would matter to the people in my life. And then here's what God showed me. He said, the reason that the enemy is able to slow down the gospel so much is because children of God, Christians, are fighting one-handed. So wait a minute, what does that mean? What does that mean? And here's the illustration he gave me. Go ahead and show me this picture, and I'll illustrate it for you. He said, on one hand, we've got our Christian friends and our Christian activities, and then on our other hand, we've got our non-Christian friends and our non-Christian activities, and they never mix. They're over here, right? So I got my Christian music, <laughs> that when I'm with my Christian friends, man, put on that Matthew West, you know what I'm talking about? Put on that when cartoons got saved, you know what I'm talking about? God, where's the Jeremy Camp? <laughs> and then then our non-Christian friends come over like, man, get that Kendrick Lamar out. Put that thing on. You know what I'm talking about? We, 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 we keep them separate from here. We got our Christian movies, right? Oh, man, wait, would you put fireproof on? We got people coming over popping popcorn. Got a better, hey, what's over here? Hey, do you have Stephen King's It? Can you put that on? You know what I mean? Like, it's just a total different thing. It's movies. It's music. We even got Christian memes, right? You got Christian gifs you send to your Christian friends, and then you got, Chris, you got other gifs you send to your non-Christian friends, all right? Let's just be real for a second. I, I, can we be real? Right? When, you, when we're amongst Christians, we act one way, and then we go get amongst non-Christians, and we act a different way. And listen, on one hand, it's our Christian life, and on the other hand, it's the non-Christian life. And listen, can I be honest with you? We don't really act that different. I'm not saying that you're fake or anything. We, we don't really act that different. It's just that we think we can't mix the two. We think that our non-Christian friends won't want to hear that song. They won't want us to pray over our food. They, you know, or we think that our Christian friends won't want to hear Kendrick Lamar, even though they got it in their car. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just an interesting situation. And look, watch, what ends up happening over time is we separate them, and we keep them like this, like this. And when you have a party, and you have a dinner at your house, you got to decide which ones. 
Which ones am I going to invite? Uh, we're going to church? I know who I'm inviting. Having a Super Bowl party? I don't know as much. And then we keep them like this. And watch this. What ends up happening is we're fighting one-handed. And the enemy knows how to fight that. Can I tell you something? Satan knows how to defeat Christians who will only talk to Christians. They know how to take, he knows how to take out a church that will only pray with church people. He knows how to go after a gospel that's only open to people who've already heard the gospel. What he doesn't know how to defend is when we mix them up, when we can go either way. It don't matter because I got Jeremy Camp on top of Kanye's new album. Like, you know what I mean? Whatever happens, it's a mixed world, and the enemy doesn't know what to do with the mixed world. He doesn't know how to battle that because he's so used to having to fight against the religion, right, and to be able to have people use that as an excuse that when you mix the two and people start to find out that I'm just as bad as you are, but I'm saved by the grace of God, and we start to understand that it can mix together, the enemy doesn't know how to fight that. He doesn't know what to do with that. When you go to eat dinner and you've got Christian friends and non-Christian friends, the enemy doesn't know what to do with that. He doesn't know how to handle that. He's confused. It's why the Pharisees went to the disciples and said, did you see that your Savior is eating with the sinners? He's at the table with the sinners. Jesus said, time out, child. I didn't come here for the healthy. I came here for the sick. I'll leave the 99 to go for the one. But I sure wish the 99 would come with me and we'll go get the one. But we have to learn to quit separating the sheep 50 by 50 and understand that, well, if you're saved, I hang out with you over here. And if you're not saved, the enemy has learned how to master that. He's not scared of that anymore. Oh, go have your church service. And I'll stand with arms out and heart abandoned. Oh, y'all worship. Enjoy your worship. He doesn't care if we stand in here and worship. But he can't stand it if we walk outside and tell somebody about Jesus. He can't stand that, y'all. He doesn't know how to fight that. He's been fighting an organization of church members for a long time. What he struggles with is people who share the gospel. He doesn't know how to defeat him. When I started thinking about this and processing this, I saw a verse. The Lord brought a verse back to my mind. I'll never see the verse the same again. Never again. Matthew chapter 4, verse 18 and 19, right? Watch this. You've seen it. You've heard it. You've processed it one way. You'll never process it the same again. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers. Simon called Peter, his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake. Why were they casting a net into the lake? For they were fishermen. What did they do for a living? Fish. What was their job? Fishermen. When, before they ever met Jesus, they were fishermen, which means they had fishermen friends. You know what I'm talking about? They had a posse that they rolled up to the lake with and threw the nets out. They weren't by themselves. They had a crew they rolled with to the lake, to the sea, to fish with. Guess what? They probably had a boat, right? They probably had fishermen language, if you know what I'm saying. They had fishermen lingo. They had nets and hooks. It was who they were before Jesus. And in comes Jesus. And Jesus says, hey, come follow me. And then isolate yourself from everything you've ever known. Walk away from fishing. Would you take your boat and, and put it on let go on the app and let somebody buy it? And would you gather all your fisherman equipment and take it to the fisherman's version of Play-Doh Closet and be able to put it in? Would you get rid of it all? Would you say goodbye to all of your fisherman friends? 
Would you say goodbye to the concept of fishing because you're not a fisher no more? That's who you were before me. Now you're a new creation and you are going to totally isolate yourself from that whole world. Did Jesus say that? No. He said you are now a fisher of men. He didn't change what they did. He changed why they did it. When you experience Jesus, it's not about you isolating yourself from all the non-Christians. It's not about you throwing away this movie and buying this movie. It's not about what you're doing. It's about why you're doing it. He said, listen, you got some fishermen friends? You're going to keep them because you're still going to fish. But the next time you're with them, oh, I wish I could sit down. My pants are too tight. (laughs) He said, I'm going to break this. I'm sorry. He said, the next time you're with them, and you're in the boat, and everybody's fishing, and cussing, and angry because they can't find no fish, you just smile. And they'll be like, Peter, are you on drugs? What's wrong with you, Peter? Be like, oh, it's a great day, isn't it? Like Chris Rock, it's a great day, ain't it? Yeah, you know, uh, you, you hadn't caught nothing. Oh, yes, I have. How many are in this boat? Oh, I don't see any fish in the boat. No, no. How many men are in the boat? Oh, there's about four of us. I caught four because I'm fishing for men. You keep fishing for fish. I'm fishing for men. And so I'm here just so you can see the reflection of my Christ. And I'm doing what God called me to do. We think the gospel says go buy you a new boat, go find you some new friends, go get you some clean bait. And the next time you see them on the lake, don't look at them. I can't look at you. You were pre-Christ. This is what we think. Jesus, I didn't say do any of that. I said go where you were, be with the people you were with, but be about my business. Be about telling them who you are now that you've met me. Be there to tell them what your life is like now that I have changed it. I assigned you a sphere of influence then. They are still your sphere of influence. You were my ticket in. Because when you accepted your heart, when you gave your heart to Jesus, you were his ticket in to your sphere of influence. So I'm thinking, I'm about to close the problem. I'm thinking, I'm like, why is this such a big deal, Brian? Why, why, is, this such, why is Satan so busy trying to stop us from mixing these two. I said last week that he doesn't care if God gets to you. He doesn't want God to get through you. And so I'm like, why why is this such a focus of his, right? I, I don't, why is this such a big deal that the last thing he wants you to do is to take who you are now and mix it with who you were then? Why does he not want you to get in, you know, Jesus in that sphere of influence? I, I couldn't, I couldn't understand it. Couldn't understand it. And then I discovered a word, just one word. Here it is. This is the word, okay? See if you recognize it. It's not yogurt, okay, in case you're wondering. (laughs) See if I can pronounce it right. I've been trying to memorize this all week. Oikos is the word. Oikos. That's the word. That word alone changed everything, and it's about to totally revolutionize it for you. Let me explain. The Bible that you have, the New Testament, for example, Matthew on, was originally written in Greek, okay? Back in the day, it was written in Greek. It has then since been translated into English language so that we can understand it. Because I don't know about you, but I don't speak Greek. I like their food, don't speak their language. You know what I mean? Well, in the process of translation, 
things kind of got missed here or there because they would take a word in their language that meant one thing and it would get translated to a word that we understand but it might mean something different in our language and if we're not careful we lose the meaning behind certain scriptures because they weren't translated exactly the way they should have been translated which is why it's important for us to know the translations behind different words okay so I'm gonna show you a verse where this word is actually in the verse okay so Acts 16 verse 32 then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. I'm sorry, Acts 16, 31. They replied, believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be what? Saved. You and your household. That word household right there is the oikos word. That's the word, oikos, right there, household. Now, when you and I hear household, what do you think? I think my two children and my wife. That's my household. Malcolm and Andrea think about their two boys and soon-to-be baby Penelope. That's their household. So when I read this, I read, if I believe in the Lord Jesus, I will be saved, me and my family. Yes. Now listen, I kind of already expected that because they're my kids and it's my wife and I have an everyday influence in them. I kind of expected to take them to church. I kind of, so that verse doesn't like blow me away per se. I get it, that if I believe in the Lord Jesus, me and my household will be saved. But you got to remember, what that said was believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your oikos. You and your oikos. When you look up the definition of the Greek word oikos, it means sphere of influence. Let's read this again. Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your sphere of influence. So now, the reason why the enemy doesn't want you to speak up is because now we're not just talking about your soul. We're talking about the 12 people that God assigned to you. And so the enemy, guess what? He can do math too. And he understands that if he loses you, all right, but he can't lose the 12 that are around you. Because if he loses the 12 around you, he might just lose their sphere. And then he might lose their sphere's sphere because everybody's sphere has a sphere right? Now watch this. Let me show you this illustration real quick of what an example of this would look like. So here, where am I at? Here you are. Here's your sphere. Now watch this. Jimmy, Michelle, I'm about to use y'all. I'm about to bust y'all out, all right? Here's Jimmy. Here's his sphere of influence. Here's Michelle. Jimmy gets to impact Michelle. Now Michelle has a what? Now Michelle has a sphere of influence. And now somebody in Michelle's sphere gets impacted and now that person has a sphere of influence. It's almost like Jesus planned this from the beginning. It's almost like we always knew that this was the process of multiplication. It's almost like God said, hey, if you'll just focus on the circle of people that I've assigned to you, through that, the gospel will change the world. It'll change the world. And this is why the enemy does not care if we sit and listen to sermons. But he cares if we start telling people about them. Because the thing that he hates the most is that you and I are making the decision he never did. And he wants so bad to stop you from impacting those around you. And I wanted you to understand today, again, it's practical, I get it. I don't have a toy in a package this week, you know. It's practical, but I'm telling you, people are missing it every day. 
because it's normally communicated so inspirational. Go change the world! But when's the last time you stopped and said, all right, who is around me? Who is it? Just think for a second, real quick. Who is it right now? Who is it that God's put in your life with the number one purpose of you sharing the gospel with them and you hadn't thought about it that way? I'm going to tell you right now, it's sweet when it works. And when you do it, it works. It may not be immediate. It may not look the way you think it's going to look. But it's the way God designed you from the beginning. Jesus had three and a half years, y'all. He had to change the world. He thought the best thing to do was to pour into 12 people. Why would we think there's a better option than that. Amen? You've heard us say this um, in a couple weeks, Easter Sunday is coming. It is the best opportunity you're ever going to have this year to be able to invite a friend to be in the presence of God. You have an obligation to the people that are in your sphere of influence. You know what's funny? I've never seen Christians not tell their friends about every good thing they found. Oh, man, did you see that recipe on Pinterest? Yeah, I'll send it to you. Hey, did you, did you see that movie, that trailer? Oh, yeah, I'll send it to you. We're so quick to share those things with the people we love. And God's calling us, church, to share the one we love the most with the ones we love. So here's what I want to do. I want to pray over you, and I want to pray over your sphere of influence. You've got three weeks till Easter Sunday. And God just told you that he's put a group around you that he assigned to you. And if you will be sensitive to the spirit of God when you leave here today, he's going to start speaking to you about people that he wants you to be prepared to impact and change their lives. And I want to pray that you'll have the boldness to do it. Can I do that? Lord, I thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word and how real it is. I thank you for how practical this message is. That God, if there's ever been a sermon that I could walk out of this door today and I could apply it to my life, it's this one. Who is around me? God, four or five years ago, you, you opened my eyes to Mandy and look what's happened. She's given her heart to you, God. She's praising you. I'm going to be able to be influential in the people in her life at her wedding. And it's all because of a plan that you assigned to me years ago and all it took was for me to notice it. And so, God, I pray for notice right now of everybody in Victory Church. Everybody who listens online, they'd begin to notice, who is around me, God? Who have you assigned to me to share the good news of the gospel? Right now, Lord, just begin to speak to hearts. I pray for boldness. I know the enemy is going to try to discourage them and make them not want to. I pray for boldness over their lives. And I'm excited, Lord, about moving forward, people, into your kingdom by spreading the gospel. We love you. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen.